Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on this not quite as hot as yesterday, but still very warm uh, day here at WOMAD. It's great to have you here. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here for our segment Techtopia Live. I'll introduce our experts in just a moment, but first up, I must apologise for not being Eleanor Hall, who was meant to be here and um, chairing this. She's unfortunately unable to make it to Adelaide this weekend. But I'm delighted to, uh, to be her understudy for, for today. My name's Bernie Hobbs. I'm from the science unit at the ABC. My expertise in AI resides pretty much entirely within the box that says, this is really freaking me out and I feel like my data's being stolen and robot wars. So um, luckily we've got a whole lot of other people who are way more interesting, way more interested and way better informed on those topics. What we're looking at today in the first 40 minutes before we come to you is what this new technology, this new emerging technology, how it's interacting with us as a society, can it really be helpful for us socially and also environmentally? It's really trying to restrain it to our interactions with it, what it can do for us, do other fears that people like me have unbased or um, are they very much real? Can I just, before we go any further, does anyone share fears like mine for the future with data privacy? I'm calling that a cool, 83%? Oh, sorry, 90? Uh, <laughs> just one of the panellists shares those fears. He's the AI researcher. Uh, <laughs> so um, you've been to these panel discussions before here at Planet Talks at Wome Adelaide. Um, so you know how it works. Uh, I've got a great panel. We'll have a bit of a discussion, but I want you to be firing and ready with your questions uh, for the, the last one quarter of our hour. We have to be out firmly on the dot too, just to make sure that um, that uh, the next gig no one's late for. So I'm going to sit down and introduce you only in order of how closeness they sit to me, perversely from the furthest away. Um, on the far left, here, as in so many other ways, I would predict, um, Professor Genevieve Bell, who you may know from the, the Boyer lectures that she presented last year. If not, you're, you may well know her as uh, a former Adelaide thinker in residence. She's a cultural anthropologist who's worked weirdly heavily in the technology sector, not something that I imagine anyone ever predicted when you were studying, no, anthropology back in the 90s, I'm saying, because, yeah... Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you've got a lot of experience in, in the tech sector in trying to drive a kind of humanism within the tech sector, trying to change the culture there. And you right now are involved in both Data61, CSIRO's technology, you know, leading think low C and E centre of excellence. Uh, but you're also, um, so you're a professor at ANU and you're heading up um, the 3A Institute, which we'll hear a little bit about in a moment. So join me in welcoming Professor Genevieve Bell. Dr. Kristen Alford is uh, an Adelaide localian and uh, she's working ridiculously hard at the moment getting a brand new museum, an experiential museum, ready for, uh, for people in Adelaide. It's called MOD and it's going to be an incredible experience where you, you get to interact with some of the latest technologies to help form and inform your thoughts about technology and humans, but also to provoke some questions, and we're definitely going to be hearing a bit more about that. She's also a futurist, so if you've got any questions about meeting your ideal love or anything, um, hold them off for uh, uh, for Kristen. Yeah, and <laughs> um, I've already alluded to Professor Toby Walsh, who's a Scientia professor at UNSW in Sydney, um, but he's not local to there at all. He's lived all around the world and researched artificial intelligence in very many and varied places. Um, and Toby is really interested in working um, with helping machines to make better decisions. And I have asked him if once he's done with the machines, if he can move on to the humans and uh, help us a little bit with that slight challenge there. So um, often, and you can see by the interest in the group here and in the, <laughs> the, um, the chair, often 
these artificial intelligence and autonomous machine discussions start with fear because, you know, we hear so much about, you know, killer robots and end of jobs and all that sort of stuff. And we even have leaders from the tech sector um, saying things like, Genevieve, you can probably just quote these off the top of your head, but um, Stephen Hawking, uh, oh, uh, AI is the greatest existential threat of our lifetimes. That old chestnut. Um, Bill Gates. Uh, the machines may be friendly for quite some time. Yeah, <laughs> followed on by, I don't understand why some people are not concerned. Yeah, um, the IBM Senior Vice President of Watson, the Artificial Intelligence Health um, Program, do you know what he said or did? No. Oh, no, well, see, we're all learning something here today, aren't we? Uh, he sent an open letter to Congress warning, you might have signed this, warning of the potential dangers of artificial intelligence. No, I didn't sign that one, but I have signed other letters. It was a <laughs> you're on change.org every minute of every day, just signing everything to protect us from the evils. And um, Elon Musk, you may have heard of, uh, the other prolific US tweeter, uh, wrote, we need to be super careful with AI, potentially more dangerous than nukes. So it's not just people who are from outside the sector who have got these fears. But having said all that, we're just going to shift the killer robots and Armageddon to a little bit later in the conversation and see if we can't start by looking at some of the, the goodness, the potential goodness, benefits to humanity and benefits to the way we've been living in our environment that could come from artificial intelligence. So as much as I'm encouraging everyone to jump in and, um, and argue with one another constantly, as I've seen you do on previous panels, uh, we will just start, if I can just get a... A bit of a um, a bit of an overview from you, Toby. Like you are an artificial intelligence researcher. You're you've been working in that field for quite some time. What are the big pluses that you think the golden opportunities and potentials from artificial intelligence and automated machinery um, that we can expect to see or we'd like to see? Well, uh, thanks for asking the question because I, I do like to remind people that there are immense benefits to be had. I, I I was at uh, the um, United Nations at a conference called AI for Good, and we went through the 17 sustainability goals that the United Nations recently set, and every one of them, AI as a technology, was going to offer, or is starting to offer, significant benefits. So I'm just going to mention three examples. I can't do all 17, but three examples, and, and, and I'll unashamedly pick two of them from my own work. One is, uh, so one of, the, one of the sustainability goals is ending hunger fantastic uh, problem to tackle. I've been working with Food Bank Australia, helping them more efficiently, more fairly distribute food, which is helping to reduce hunger in Australia. Outside Australia as well, or just within Australia? Oh, actually, so the, the, the technology is being used by food banks now around the world, in the United States, in Russia and elsewhere, to try and improve the efficiency of their operations. Uh, so a, a good example. Uh, second example, climate change. Um, what work... is that again? <laughs> Well, this is, the, this is one of the best places in Australia to be talking about climate change because you guys have my respect, all, all that you're doing. Um, we've been working with a big multinational in Australia who deliver half of the bread in Australia, and we've helped them optimise their supply chain so they use 10% less fuel. That means they make, save tens of millions of dollars each year, but most importantly... That means they save thousands of tonnes of carbon dioxide that they don't burn to deliver your bread. So it's not always just about AI being help, like right in there helping analyse climate data and all that sort of stuff. There's practical yes, economic this is, this, and this is, this is finding better routes, finding shorter routes, mm. classic travelling salesman problem. Um, so that Which we can you actually... say as if many of us have heard of it. <laughs> of how you go around, which order you go around all the cities to visit. Um, how do you, how, what's the best order to send the trucks round so that they travel the least amount of distance? So this is doing more with less. Mm -hmm. And what's what we need to do with our planet? We need to do more with less. Um, and then the third example uh, that some of my colleagues are working on, which is how to catch poachers. How Use to? Catch poachers. So they're working in, in um, wildlife parks in Africa, working out using machine learning, using optimization to work out where the, where the poachers are most likely to be poaching, where to send the guards to try and catch those people to protect the elephants and all the other animals that are being uh, hunted by the poachers. So um, dealing with our biodiversity, trying to protect the, the other inhabitants of our planet. 
Well, so based on that, at the moment, I think the vote from the audience is AI good. Yeah, well, just this audience anyway. <laughs> we will get into the, uh, the more detailed stuff. Um, before we, go, <laughs> before we go to any of the nuance that you're so famous for, Genevieve, can you just paint us a picture? Like your, I know with the boy lectures that you recently delivered, it was about a smarter, faster, more connected future. Can you go beyond that if you like, but please just give us your vision of the very best that that smarter, faster, more connected, artificially intelligent future could offer? Sure. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things, if you take a step sort of sideways, so park the historical kind of language, take a step sideways and say, what are we actually talking about? We're talking about a constellation of technologies that change the way computing functions. Mm -hmm. Up until now, compute has really been what we'd call a command and control architecture. So programs and humans told computers pretty explicitly and exquisitely what to do, and they that did what was in the frame. Very military. Uh, and that's where it comes from, that language, right, was that it was task-centric. I mean, the earliest computers that were things that are the you know, ancestors of what we use now were designed to aim guns better. I mean, it was about how did you do faster calculations. I mean, for better or worse, that is the history of computing. Mm -hmm. There was a period during World War II when computers were people. In fact, they were women, not just people, but gendered people, and they were mathematicians, and they sat in rooms and did logarithmic tables. And, you know, it took a really long time. And, you know, one woman could do a certain amount of calculations in 30 minutes that a machine could do in 10 seconds. Mm. So it's, you know, computing has its history in crunching large data sets and doing it for very particular tasks. What AI lets happen is that it doesn't have to run on the rails as previously determined. And that's, of course, why it's scary too, right, is that, you know, maybe what would a world look like that isn't command and control? And I think, you know, one option is to spend a lot of time engaging in a kind of speculative conversation. And the second one is to do what Toby and I and others are doing, which is to start to build what a new set of parameters would look like. And so for me, the interesting space is to say, you can't put AI technologies back in a box. You have to allow that they exist. So what would it mean to start building a new set of critical questions? What would it mean to start making sure that we put questions about ethics and morality at the beginning? What would it mean to start building a new way of thinking, doing, teaching, even resisting the technology actually means asking a different set of questions, not is it an existential threat, but what is the nature of the opportunity? Mm -hmm. So at the moment what I'm doing, because yeah, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time, <laughs> was how do you build a new academic discipline to manage that next generation of computing? So, you know, that's what I'm doing in Canberra these days, you know. And, and I miss hopefully, Adelaide. <laughs> hopefully that will bleed down to, to school levels as well because oh. we're all going to need... So if I understand right, what you're talking about is kind of building into the artificially intelligent systems as they develop a different way of doing things and yeah. a different world. Of actually asking a different set of questions. So yeah. if you imagine that computing has some capacity because of artificial intelligent technologies to not be commanded and controlled in the old-fashioned way, what does that mean? Well, partly it means we need to think about will those systems be autonomous and what does that mean? Mm. We have a lot of conversations about autonomous technologies where we end up talking about self-driving cars. I know. Does it ever get beyond that? Yeah, it does. Oh, and that's right. Weapons. Yeah. Or, or swarming satellite dishes in space, which mm. is a different thing, right? So there's a sort of what do we mean when we talk about autonomous? How would we regulate it? How would we build it? How would we control it? Mm. How would we think about it? There's a set of questions about what would it mean for those systems to have limits? How would we determine them if they're not determined a priori by software, but they're determined in some other way? And then how on earth would we think about safety, security, risk, liability, trust, ease of use, manageability? It's a very different set of questions than the ones we've spent 60 years in some ways prosecuting. So for me, the opportunity space is how do we get ahead of the conversation and actually put some stakes in the ground about the way we want that world to unfold? It's deliberately. Really, it's really interesting because it sounds like you're also, and interesting that it's happening at the Me Too moment, that it sounds like you're looking at changing that paradigm from that kind of militaristic thing to a more human, more diverse um, and less masculine command and control, less, less militaristic thing. I'm just putting words in your mouth there. You can throw them you out. You are, but you, you know, as a research-trained anthropologist with a background in feminist and critical theory, it's surprising that I'd end up in that place, except <laughs> not at all. <laughs> 
Well, we're definitely going to talk a bit more about um, that, the reality of that kind of how you go about building that kind of uh, change into into what's developing in artificial intelligence. Um, but I love that you're you're more concerned about the reality of how it is interplaying with us, and we're interplaying with it socially and individually. So we've got. We've got actions, we've got artificial intelligence actions with Toby, and not exclusively that, we'll hear some of your concerns later. Kristen, paint us your big, beautiful picture of artificial intelligence. Uh, so as Bernie said, I'm in the midst of creating this new museum called MOD, and I think what's interesting is when you're trying to create a museum which is around the future and around showcasing um, a collection of ideas rather than artefacts and asking what that possibility is, AI inevitably comes up as one of the things. So are we talking artificial intelligence or are we talking machine intelligence? Are we talking algorithms? Are we talking robots? They're, they're all slightly different and they all have, um, but we tend to, I think constellation is the right word, we tend to cluster those as imagining Terminator 2. Um, and the reality of that is not, is not actually that. And I think some of the examples you've heard will bring, bring those through. I mean, the second thing for me in building the museum is that we're part of a global network of science centres that are looking at the ways that technologies can be applied. Um, and the global network of science centres and museums have charged themselves with how do we contribute to the sustainable, to sustainability development goals, the UN goals that Toby was mentioning. Um, and I think that's a really interesting question. So when I did my Masters of Foresight, my thesis was looking at um, images of the future and in the literature, I found a whole lot of what I would call the shiny chrome futures <laughs> and a whole lot of the eco-hessian futures and nothing in the middle. And I, and I think, so when I think about what we're charged at the museum, it might be around interacting with an algorithm that teaches you how to dance. It might be sitting in a space that's full of artificial nature that provokes some questions. But I'm really keen at how you then start to build that link between what does the use of technology look like when you're applying it to important purpose-filled questions. Mm. So, you know, for futures, it, there is always a moral imperative because you're always asking, what should we do? Mm. Um, and I think, you know, when you're looking at autonomous AI, there is a should in there, and we can either choose to make that should something that's worthwhile or something that is trivial or dangerous. So that's, mm. that's what I'm interested in exploring. Uh, I, I like to give people a, a simple uh, mnemonic. It's the, the four Ds, the dirty, the dull, the dangerous, and the difficult. And AI could help us with all four Ds. In a good way? In a good way. Yeah. Yeah, so that you know, today we're seeing our, our minds being increasingly automated because they're dirty and dangerous. Hundreds of people used to die in the mines of Australia each year. It's now a few dozen because of automation. Mm. Okay, well, I like that, the four Ds. All right, we'll get more acronyms. Um, Genevieve <laughs> seems compelled to be able to reel off lists of at least 12 complex phrases. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I'm happy with a dumb acronym. So dumb was one of the Ds, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah thanks. Hey. <laughs> I don't believe you. Just because you're on holidays doesn't mean your brain switched off. <laughs> it's running a little slower. There's, you know, the cells do atrophy when you stop using them. Um, let's go from this, from this view of, um, of all great and goodness that could happen there, which I think we managed to sneak in a few cautionary tales to. I was going to say, we won't, we won't positive that whole way. But no, no. no, no. Still <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't too bad compared to how it could have been. We'll get worse later. Um, let's have a little reality check. So you are at the heart and soul, at the coalface of the AI, you know, the grunty computer work, or your minions in your research laboratories are at any rate, Toby. Um, My computers are. Yeah, <laughs> is that the people kind of computers, the honest students? No. Okay, so can you just give us a picture of where we are at right now with artificial intelligence. So you've mentioned things like improving the efficiency of supply chains. I mean, to me, that is in no way scary. Um, you know, you were telling me something about a, an organ donation. Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on, on how we can better match organs donated in Australia and New Zealand to patients. There's a limited resource of those, and we want to do that more fairly and more efficiently. Um, there's, there's lots of things we can do with AI, but I don't want people to think the Terminator is coming anytime soon. It's not. We're way, way away. If you ask most of my colleagues, they'll say it's maybe 100, if, if not even more years, if, if ever, that we have to worry about that. We can build machines to do specialized, focused tasks. And one narrow task, play go well, read x-rays better than a human. One task, and they can do it, in many cases, at superhuman level. Mm. And there's no reason to suppose our brain is anything special there's nothing that, that we can't do better with a machine. But machines don't match the capability of the human brain. 
by a long way, and there's a long time before we'll even come close at all. We are amazingly adaptable. We have amazing breadth of ability. I can take anyone in this audience, put them in a new situation, and they can start doing something. Computers will just break. They are terrible. They're, they're, they, they can do one task, maybe one task very well, but that's it. So if they're going to become our overlords, we need them on wheels so we can take them somewhere where they won't cope. Yeah, they won't go up a flight of stairs. Yeah. They can barely open the, open the door. So there's, there's very little you need to fear about our machines are going to take over. They have no sentence, no desires of their own. They do what we uh, program them to do. But do they? I mean, isn't that the fear that they will have? I mean, uh, wasn't, what's her name, Alexa, just laughing randomly last week? The, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to freak people out, but that's exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> Uh, so do you think, like, these, these things that we are afraid of, how close is that? It's mostly the unintended consequences, the things that we don't expect. They're complex systems and they're behaving complex ways and we give them often too much responsibility. And the other, I mean, the other thing for me with Alexia is that, you know, she might laugh hysterically and that's very spooky, but then we behave in a different way in response to that. Yeah. yeah. So while the we machine, stop telling us stuff. Well, while the machine has no, you know, agency, if you like, we, our response will change depending on what we see. So I, I'm thinking of all those people who've moved downstairs, you know, to, they, they've shifted their lives around in response to a laughing machine, which is, which is... What do you mean move downstairs? Oh, there was an article about a people, you know, somebody who had the Alexa upstairs and she oh. was laughing in the middle of the night where the bedroom was and they, you know, shifted downstairs <laughs> into Throw the lounge her room. out. Turn her off, I don't know. But, you know, we do, res we do respond to these things. We change our yeah. behaviour in response to, to, to some of it. So I think that's... That's the other interesting thing that, that complicates yeah. artificial intelligence. I do wonder though, Bernie, while you've got Toby on stage and he is one of the experts on this, it might actually be good to get him to unpack what AI is because we use it as though that were a clearly well understood term. And, you know, Kristen and I were basically saying, well, I, th I think of it as a constellation of technologies that get us close to it. But when you're talking about AI, you know, what is it that we are really talking about? It's, it's a fantastic question because it's not one thing. People think it's one thing, but it isn't. It's a collection of tools and techniques that we're slowly building, putting together to try and make machines behave a little more intelligently. So it's algorithms, isn't it? There are algorithms, but there are stupid algorithms and there are algorithms that are slightly smarter. There's all the data that goes behind those algorithms that often frequently it's learning, improving its performance by training on the data that we give it. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a grab bag of, of different things. It's not one thing. And sensing tools, right? And sensing so tools. Can it see? And, can it hear? And can it mechatronics, make sense? you know. So it's kind of like we've broken down what a human brain and body system can do into these different components, the sensory bits, the um, data processing, and then the decision making. So AI is all of those things just not yet come completely together? or We're slowly putting the pieces back together, building robots, for example, that can sense the world, that can act in that world, can speak to you, can understand what you're saying, and act on your commands. But we still really, um, you know, we don't build something that has the capabilities of a two-year-old child. We mm. build something that, that uh, is very uh, incapable of doing things. Because you need things that are, I mean, for that constellation of technologies to work well, you need a data-rich environment with very clear rules, and mostly, to Toby's point, that's stationary. Mm. So, like, you know, things that are running around, quite complicated, stairs, bad, this would be terrible for most robotic objects because yeah. too much, I mean, just too many things going on. Multiply, all of us also dirt. So there's a bit that says, when you think about what classes of problems do the current constellation of AI technology suit best, they're things where the rules are really well known, so there's a clear set of parameters. There's a lot of data to draw on and it's basically a homogeneous task. So same thing over and over again. So, but that's what it's like now. But I think the thing for me, the real fear is what happens if and when they get consciousness. I mean, totally, of course it's well, so, a sci-fi so, you've, you've just said view. two things there that if are already problematic. You've said yeah. they, so you've yeah. asserted identity, identity yeah. and you've said consciousness. Is there a, a pronoun I could use that's not? It. 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 Oh, really? Okay. And then, the, and then the second word is consciousness. So, I mean, what's fascinating is one of the reasons we get, one of the reasons we have an emotional set of reactions is at the moment the only semantics we have for talking about AI is driven by those words, like, yeah. you know, that intelligence can only be manifested through consciousness or sentience or awareness, and that the only version of that we recognize is ourselves. Yeah. And then we've got, eh, in the West, 
200 years, maybe a thousand years of stories that go, nothing good happens when shit comes to life. <laughs> like Frankenstein, Gollum, the Terminator's just a long list of things that happen when humans make stuff come to life. It's never good. But and that's so, evolution because only those stories are fun. The, uh... Well, exactly because those, and that's exactly right. I mean, those stories have persisted because they have an element of, you know, gothic horror to mm. them. And they, they stay because they're just so stories. But the reality is talking about a constellation of technical systems as though it had a self and as though that self would then have consciousness is not just a series of semantic leaps. Mm. It's a series of leaps that the technology can't keep up with. Now, all of that said, one of the very first guys who was talking about what AI would look like back in 1956, so a guy named McCarthy, who was at the original conference where the term AI gets coined, so back in America, a bunch of people got together, spent a summer trying to work out if these machines, these computers get really fast and smart, you know, could we make them think like us? And so this entire research agenda gets set out and one of the principal proponents said something that at the time his colleagues laughed at him for. But he basically said, if you teach a machine to think, you will teach it to reason and if it reasons, it will ultimately believe. Mm -hmm. And that in his mind, you couldn't separate out thinking, reasoning and belief. And in your mind, can you? In my mind, I think it is safe to assume the point at which you prime a system with enough data that it develops mechanisms by which it makes sense of that data. There is no reason to assume the only mechanisms it will have will be the ones we teach it. Hmm. it it's worth remembering. I mean, we sort of Hence. focused on the eye of artificial intelligence, but it's worth remembering there's that other word there that I doesn't get much attention. A, artificial. It may be a very different type of intelligence when we build it, to the sort of intelligence we have. I Which mean, would be the deep mind. Uh, da da David Chalmers, uh, the philo Australian philosopher, has said, you know, it might be a zombie intelligence. Great, that's comforting <laughs> for me and everyone here. In the sense that it will be incredibly smart, but it won't have any of the sentience, any of the consciousness that we have. Mm. Well, that we don't actually understand anything at all about consciousness. One of, one of the, I'm often asked as a futurist, well, what is, a job, what is the job of the future? And so one of, one of the ones that I always put forward is a computational psychiatrist who <laughs> works out how we now have to think about how machine, machines think and reason with the idea that they may not use the same logic that we do after they've taught themselves to think. And how would you then, uh, you know, ameliorate or understand that to design things in a different way? Because think about the way humans learn, right? So anthropologist here, I can have that bit that says, you know, there are multiple ways that we, in most cultures, learn. One of them is through being told what the rules are and following them. However, all of us in the room were also all children and you were told what the rules were and one of the ways you tested that was by breaking them <laughs> to see if anything happened. Partly because you wanted to test the limits of authority partly because you wanted to test the limits of your parents or whoever else was telling you the rules, partly because it was consequence, and in no small part because one of the ways in most cultures you learn is by putting your body into the rule system, right? And so but physically, you know, you learn... Suck it and see. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, mum says I can't do that. Well, what happens if I do? And so there's a bit that says humans learn through rules, but they also learn through the exceptions to the rules, and they also learn by embodying mm. those rule systems and accumulating those experiences. Whilst machines have, some machines have bodies of a sort, it is not clear whether they will learn ah. through the same mechanisms, right? I mean, Elon Musk and his Teslas, he spent a lot of time teaching cars the rules. He didn't, for instance, decide that he was going to teach cars how to be on the road by having them crash constantly and thus intuit the rules from the crashing. He went the other way, for obvious reasons. Um, but there is sort of something there about, I mean, to both... And, and the other points here, right, is why would we imagine that the learning will end up in the same place if the mechanisms by which the learning is happening don't look like human learning? That's yeah. so interesting. One of, one of the other things we're working for a future exhibition is to upturn some of the narrative that Genevieve's been talking about and sort of say, well, if the narrative has always been that robots will, you know, they'll take over our jobs and then they'll kill us, what does it look like if it's not that? What does a human-robot collaboration look like, for instance? And one of our professors at, at UniSA has been doing some design work on how you tell people that you're working in a space with robots. You know, we have a wear your glasses, wear your safety boots, what does the robot sign look like? But I'm equally fascinated to what know... What does it look like? <laughs> well, I'm equally fascinated to know what is the sign for the robot to let it know that it's working with humans because that might be a different set of messages that you put through. Well, and so the guys at um, so Amazon in Seattle has this massive warehouse, their quote-unquote fulfilment warehouse, 
warehouse, which is a lovely name, but it's basically where orders get fulfilled, right? And inside the warehouse... It sounds so Willy Wonka. It doesn't adjust, and it is a bit Willy Wonka because it's got robots and humans in a co-working space, and the robots have these very clearly painted yellow lines on the floor to help them guardrail them, basically, so they compute vision, very clear about where the robots are going. And the humans are told really explicitly, do not go across the yellow lines. <laughs> and you're laughing, I know, because you know exactly what the humans are doing. In the right? first the robots, five minutes The robots the are diligently day. proceeding inside the yellow <laughs> lines because that's the rule and they stick to the rule because they've been told the rule like, and the rule is really clear. And the humans just traipse around and think that the yellow lines don't apply to them. They can, of course, get across the yellow line before the robot does. And it became very clear very quickly that the robots needed to be given a second set of effectively human sensing tools because whilst the robots always followed the rules, the humans didn't. Mm. And not in a way that was easily made into an algorithm. Humans were, in fact, not good rational beings inside these factories. <laughs> I have never heard that before. I know, shockers, right? <laughs> Same problem with, you know, what happened to all the autonomous cars in Silicon Valley. They were mostly, the limited set of accidents there have been have mostly been caused by humans not stopping at stop signs. <laughs> Well, more to the point, not coming to a full and complete stop, shifting out of gear at stop signs, whereas that's what the robotic objects were doing, right? So there's a whole piece here that's Why are you looking at me? I generally stop at those signs, mostly. Sorry. It's, it's, it's great that we're talking about how computers might learn differently, because we already know that in some sense, and this is why you're all going to be surprised how quickly computers learn to do things that we do, because they are in some sense much better primed to be learners. Like what? So, so for example... Well, if you learn to ride a bicycle, you have to fall off the bicycle and hurt yourself a few times. It doesn't help me learn to ride a bicycle. You can tell me a few tricks, but I'm going to have to learn that skill myself. Mm. But every night, Tesla uploads the code from every Tesla on the planet, which has been learning how to drive the roads better, and shares that with every other Tesla. So they're learning on a planet-wide scale, and every Tesla is as good as every other Tesla, and it just increments upwards. That's not like human learning. We have to learn everything for our... We're used to learning every skill for ourselves. If I learn German, it doesn't help you learn German. Mm. If I learn to ride a bicycle, it doesn't learn... I wish it did, because both our yes. partners are yeah, German. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so we, and that's why we will be surprised how quickly they learn, because it's not a human level. It's not a human speed learning. Just it's check. a machine speed. Just one thing on that. I do like that, that it's kind of a hive or herd learning, like one learns and, and everyone, everyone learns. Yes. But um, I do remember in my How and Why book back in the 70s, which explained how everything worked, it did say that robots still could not, this is in the 70s, still could not ride a bicycle, no hands. Can they do that yet? Uh, they, <laughs> they, can, they can ride a, a motorbike for sure. No hands? Uh, <laughs> They don't have hands. It was, it they was, don't have hands, and there's probably a law against it. Oh, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so in, on the one hand, I'm getting quite heartened that the kinds of things that usually make up our dystopian stories that feed the, the horror, and I will just... Toby has just written a book on artificial intelligence, and the um, what's the tagline? Artificial intelligence from the logic piano to killer robots. And the subtitle? Oh, to killer robots. To kill Thank robots. you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we're all in on this. Uh, so that kind of dystopian stuff. I feel like you've given me some sense of security that it's not going to happen in the next twenty years. Does, does well, that think, seem fair? I think the other thing is that dystopias don't happen in isolation from utopias. Like, yeah. like the present is a messy place where we have days of joy and days of violence, the future will be the same. So what I was wondering is, do you think that the time it's going to take to, for those, that kind of dystopic, you know, all thinking, all knowing consciousness, you know, controlling the humans thing to be a possibility, do you think that leaves enough time for the kind of social change that you were talking about, Genevieve, to develop? I mean, you're talking about developing one academic course. I feel like we're going to, to need a bit more than that. Well, I'm thinking of developing an entire academic discipline, not just one course. Right. Um, I was thinking it's important, I mean, and where Kristen is going, right, is that what's interesting to me sometimes is that the dystopian future is not universally shared. Mm. So that the stories we tell ourselves about why the robots are problematic are not universally shared stories, right? So Japanese roboticists tell a very different story about the arc of robotic possibility. You know, the leading Japanese roboticist likes to talk a lot about how robots will be better Buddhists than human beings, 
because they are capable of infinite patience and thus will experience infinite grace, which is a completely different way of kind of thinking about the robot overlord experience. Um, so there's a bit that says, you know, dystopias are not, they're not a manifest reality, right? And I mean, to Christian's point, they're always going to be dystopic and utopic. Um, I think there are deliberate places that as citizens, as consumers, as human beings, we might want to intervene to develop futures that we care about, right? Mm. I don't think it's just a matter of saying the dystopian future will arrive, she's the futurist, we should ask her, but probably Tuesday at about 3 p.m. So, you know, if you get your homework done before then, good for you, if you didn't, don't worry about it. It doesn't work like that, mm. right? And the reality is most stories we tell ourselves about the future tend to be um, inaccurate in one domain or another. Time horizon is wrong. What's time horizon? Well, so when do we oh, think it's, it's going to happen? So, you know, Toby and I, well, and Kristen too, we all know there's a very famous American futurist who's been talking about a moment when we'll be able to upload our consciousness to the net. See him make that face? That's the right face. <laughs> because he's been talking about this for 30 years and the due date has moved oh. and has varied not inconsiderably and we've blown through about three of them in the last <laughs> When's five years. When's the next years. one? I've got oh, faith in the 2049. guy. 2049. That's, that's, that's right, isn't it? That's when Ray's got the singularity happening. Yeah, it, but it used to be 20... And then 2020. And Just like, after his death. <laughs> you think he's going to go that long? That's such... Well, he's freezing himself, I know that. So. <laughs> oh, that's true. Not, that's not, such not a reliable way of guaranteeing longevity, yeah. Well, so long as you don't do it, like, which is the one who just cut off his head and froze it? That always seemed to Walt me to be Disney? not a good... Yeah, I think it's Disney. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't seem like a good plan. No, really. no. no. Um, but to go to your question, do we, do we... We should never make the mistake, we made it with climate change, that we have time to mm. prepare for this. We don't. It's already too late in some respects. We were talking about Alexa just now. And... George Orwell wrote 1984 to warn us about how, our, how government could invade our privacy. And yet now people are paying money to have an object that sits in their house, taking their data and, and giving it to a private company over which you have no control. I mean, it's, it's 1984, but you brought into it. Not only that, my cousin, who's an AI researcher at Google, gave every one of his family, including his three daughters, their own one for Christmas because yeah, he's interested in, in gathering the data to make the decision-making better. Yeah, so it, maybe it makes your life convenient in the short term. But you have to ask yourself the question about what's happening to our privacy. Yeah, well... So participatory totalitarianism? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we're participating. I think most of it's being dictated by, by the neoliberals in Silicon Valley. Well, and, and so you ask, good, are we into the fear part of the program now? Yep. Okay, good. <laughs> good Just Is everyone like, feeling, you know, yeah, yeah, comfortable? It's like you felt maybe you. good, you should stop feeling good. Because, <laughs> um, listen, you know, I know where I am optimistic about getting things done. I think my prevailing anxiety is less about the technical platforms than it is about where those technical platforms are being developed for whom and why mm. and what is the motive that is driving them. So, you know, I'm not sure that I'd want to say the neoliberal Silicon Valley, but I will say we are at a moment in time where there are maybe six or seven companies globally who are building the vast majority of the artificial intelligent technical systems and they don't operate under a level of scrutiny with which we might be comfortable and it is not yet clear how those companies will unfold over time. So mm. my anxiety might well be that, you know, Orwell thought it was government that would engage in sort of black is white, night is day, peace is war, but the reality is it looks more like the Dutch East India Company from 300 years ago mm. and we might want to ask some questions about that. So I'm less concerned about the technology than I am about the motives that sit underneath of it. Well, and those motives are surely the same as the motives that drive all decision-making and whether it's government or corporation or the interplay between both, which is more power and money for the powerful. Yeah, and notions about how that money is acquired. Mm. So, you know, part of the rationale for the acquisition of much of the data that is currently being acquired is how to sell us more things better. So, you know, advertising. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great pity because actually the dream, the 60s dream that... The, you know, that founded the internet and the, the pioneers was very actually sharing and, uh, and, and participatory in the sense that, you know, it's a technology that does allow us to do these things. And it's, you know, for example, let me give you a concrete example. Taxes, right? The taxi sector did need disrupting, but I don't think we deserved Uber, where all of the wealth is being stolen by this corporation that sits in the middle. And okay, maybe it's a bit more convenient for you, the consumer, but the, the, the producers, the of the, of the transport, the drivers, 
they're earning so little money that some of them are having to sleep in their cars. And all of that value is being stolen by this vile object in the middle that behaves completely inappropriately in many cases. You know, as when, when the data is stolen from Uber, they don't even bother to tell you. They just pay off the people. But at least they're paying tax. So in that way, they're contributing. No kidding. No. No. Yeah, they're not paying tax either. Well, they're not contributing and anything. And yet, you know, the technology allows you to build a decentralised market where everyone does share and where we do make better and more efficient uses of our but resources. But who's going to push for that? I mean, it's not as if private corporations are going to be pushing for a market that, you know, levels the playing field and, and tries to narrow that gap between the uber-wealthy, sorry, and, and the rest of us. Um, there has to be something else at play. Is regulation going to be the answer and can that even work? I yep. certainly think, it, yes. I mean, insofar as that regulation has been one of the things that has always ensured that citizens had a modicum of citizen right beyond their role as consumers, then I think absolutely yes. And there are clearly places where there are really robust and interesting conversations happening about this world, whether it's about data, who owns it, how it can be shared, notions of privacy, whether it's about thinking about how to regulate the internet, you know, is net neutrality or its opposite, so could you in fact charge more for certain data to move on the internet, the only reality? Or, I mean, I think the most interesting piece of speculative regulation I read last year came out of Germany, and it was the German government attempting to work out how would you create an environment in which autonomous vehicles would be on the road? And for them it was about how did you think about who was going to be liable and why. And so they said the manufacturers of the vehicles have to be liable, but the standard we will hold them to is not the safety of the passengers but the safety of pedestrians. Mm. So already saying these vehicles have to exist in a broader ecosystem where it's not just the vehicle, it's all of us as a society. And then the second two bits of liability, equally interesting, one was they said the state has to be on the hook for creating a clear articulated road system so, like, consistent road signs, that'd be good. Right. <laughs> without Thinking, trees going across the giveaway oh, you know, sign. without the memory of a road that is what exists from Pimba to Alice Springs. Um, <laughs> and then you needed to have a... The, the federal government was on the hook for creating a well-expressed, managed and shared set of road rules. And so what that starts to say is you can't... Autonomous vehicles can't just be driven by a profit motive and we can't bring them into existence without also being clear about... It's not just the technology, it's about the system that it's going to operate in, which is the built environment, the drivers, the rules and everyone else. And so yeah. this is what we're talking about being implemented in Germany before yeah. like, that has to be the, yeah. the baseline for yeah. Tesla. So, yeah, so I was just going to say, we, we, we need to not think about regulation as a set of you know, discrete things that stop things from happening, but as our should. Mm. You know, what do we want? What should we have? And that's, that's what the regulation then guides, as opposed to thinking about it as, a, oh, you can't do that bit of it. And how the hell are we going to get people engaged in this conversation and caring about this stuff when everyone's, you know, when they're not sitting hearing from great minds in tents, they're flicking through, you know, their phone's feed about whatever. Like everyone, it's very hard to find people who have time to engage in anything, let alone care about the broader um, change that might be needed in our systems. I think people are waking up to the idea that we do have to take some responsibility that there is increasing dissatisfaction with our political and economic situations and the, the increasing inequality in our society, uh, in, increasing concern about the political process, the, the level of political discourse is one where we as citizens need to take responsibility and, and elect the people that are going to make choices. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed to see what you know, South Australia is doing in terms of sustainability. We need to be thinking the same in terms of our digital futures. Hmm. Now, it's getting time for your questions. So, Steph, if you want to come and grab the microphones. Yeah, we've got a couple of hands up already. Before you get to those um, questions, do you want to hand that one over as well? Oh, there we go. Um, so, just so we don't think, Toby, you're all pro-artificial intelligence. Beforehand, you were telling me about a small concern that you have about autonomous weapons. Yes, yeah, so something I have been rather vocal the last two years about is is, and this is a very immediate concern, which is very stupid AI being used by the military to transform the nature of warfare. And um, we shouldn't be handing over the decision of who lives or 
who dies to a machine that doesn't have the right moral distinctions that will transform completely the speed and scale of war. And I'm pleased to say that actually the United Nations is discussing this topic. It would be great if our government, which has led the way in disarmament talks elsewhere around chemical, biological, nuclear non-proliferation, various other topics, was more proactive and wasn't just towing the, uh, the US line. Um, but, you know, I, I, I encourage all of you to, to um, make yourself more informed on this topic because it will make warfare a much more terrible, terrifying thing if we don't make a decision, as we have with some other technologies, to actually use it for good and not for bad. Thank you. Uh, your question? Um, so apologies, I'm going to bring it to near-term technology changes, um, and that's about driverless cars. Um, and just seeing the implications from that, I've been reading a number of articles talking about the security and the data that comes out of driverless cars and how governments can control it. And the other issues are around whether um, driverless cars are able to help with, um, with the environment um, in the sense that um, do we have cars that drop you off at work, drive around for two hours and pick you up again and come back again. So I have read articles that said that the, uh, the peak hour traffic um, basically doubles because cars drive you into work and go out of the CBD and come back again. So just some questions around that. Toby? Yeah, uh, it, it's, the technology could allow us to do a lot more with a lot less. So there was a study done for Lisbon. They said you could do the transport of Lisbon with autonomous cars with one-tenth of the cars. Um, but, you know, equally, if it just means that you can, um, you know, send your car off and go and park it at home, then maybe we have to think about the societal changes that go with the technology enables both of those futures to happen. And it's about us choosing which of those futures we want. And I think there's a reasonable conversation we might also want to surface that says for the amount of intellectual energy, research dollars and policy attention we've put into self-driving or autonomous vehicles, we might be asking those same questions about what would it take to improve our public transportation system <laughs> and about what it would be to think about that as a whole, a, a, more holistically, right? So how do you think about using the data that we know about how people move to integrate public transportation, ride-sharing systems, bike-sharing systems, pedestrian systems, and other forms of transportation and parking, so that you actually did that holistically, rather than focusing on the vehicle piece. You are trouble. Yeah, in a, in a good way. I like it. How do we, anyway, <laughs> how we do we get that change to happen? We have another question down here, yep. Hi, thanks for coming, guys. Um, just got a question about more about democracy and AI. Um, we have a generation now that's getting more interconnected with the digital economy and um, social media. And I noticed more online that one, it's designed to just sell us stuff and chase us to sell to buy stuff. And two, on social media, we're being fed this echo chamber of one worldview. And I'm wondering if AI can potentially shatter that echo chamber and allow us to get a more fair and unbiased view of the world to make us better informed citizens and as well as maybe um, improve the state of democracy that is in crisis at the moment? Yes, I think it's a really interesting question about the sort of thing that might come across our feed. Um, the other part of that is though we have to then read it <laughs> or pay attention to it and, and we're primed to pay attention to things that we already agree with and that we already find interesting because that's comfortable. And so you're asking then a machine to... I mean, while I could, we could rearrange an algorithm so that you're getting recommendations from people who are not like you, but I doubt you'd use the platform. Mm. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a more tricky question than just can we do it with the AI because we, we can, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be useful. I, I do think we need to think about whether we should regulate in this sort of space. We already have very strict rules about how much money you can spend on an election so that it isn't the richest person who wins. And I don't think we want to end up in a world where we're seeming to be going down very soon where the person with the most data or the best algorithm wins. We want the people with the best ideas to win. You utopian fool. I love that. <laughs> now, I do hope that that's true. And I know your daughter's in the audience and you have to paint a positive picture for the future. Yeah, but we have to regulate to ensure that so that there are limits to what you can do. Right? We could just say you're not allowed to make political adverts uh, in Facebook. That would solve a lot of that problem full stop. Yeah, and we know that there's been, I mean, I, 
uh, there has been an accelerated capacity to think about how you use data to target political activities. And there is a, a reasonable question to say the same way we have opened up all sorts of other media activities and funding activities to scrutiny, this should be the same. And, you know, ways to say what does it mean to imagine a world in which there is a great deal of data and you are exquisitely known. At the moment, it is reasonable to say most of that has been in, in the West and in you know, a series of very different democracies from each other, mm. that data has been used to both target, you know, consumers and been used in some places for citizen activity. But there's a reason to kind of open that question out and say, what would democracy look like in a place where citizens are no longer just consumers but have a different relationship to the nation state? What would that look like? And, you know, how do we start to have those conversations and not assume that democracy is a monolithic whole that everyone has the same experience of. I mean, having spent 30 years in America, I spend a lot of time explaining to Americans that voting can be compulsory without it not being an abrogation of your citizens' rights. <laughs> they find that almost impossible to believe. They're like, but how can you make people vote? That's terrible. That's not democratic. And I'm like, okay. Not only that, you can't vote while wielding a gun. It's oh, weird. Very sad. Yeah. Um, we have another question here. Someone has a microphone. Oh, sorry. Yes. Sorry. Me? Okay. Um, that little conversation just provoked a different question. So I'm going to ask a, a question about whether or not we can develop AI systems which are self-regulating. So could we um, incorporate a sense of ethics or um, a predisposition towards certain decisions and functions within an AI system? We don't know. This is, this is a research problem to decide whether we can build machines that that capture the right sort of ethics. It's a real, really interesting challenge. And, and it goes back, you know, ultimately, fundamentally, to the question we discussed at the start about consciousness. Maybe you can only be truly ethical if you're conscious and aware of your decisions. So these are really deep, fundamental questions that go to the heart of us about the machines that are going to be inhabiting and acting in our lives. What you can certainly do in the short term, however, is imagine where are the places where computation is augmenting human decision making and how do you manage the frontier between those two things. I mean, it's very clear that certain kinds of computation is capable of, what was the word you used? It wasn't dizzying speed, but, you know, is capable of accelerated speed. Humans don't think at that speed. So how we manage the transition between a computational object saying, here are your set of choices and a human making decisions, managing that interface is actually going to be beyond the kind of technical problem of how you might bootstrap the systems. There's also a piece there about humans are going to have to think about how they want to imagine a relationship with those kind of augmented systems too. Mm, coping with the speed of life now is certainly something that a lot of us are struggling with. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I think there, there are some systems where you could more easily regulate than others. So I'm thinking about an energy efficient system and utilisation of resources. So we could, opt, we could know what an optimum use of that looks like and, we could, um, and the machines could be fed with that information to run themselves to that optimum use. Um, it reminds me of a short film I saw recently, which was a... Um, it was set in a, like an asset sharing system where the toaster decided whether you were worthy of owning it. <laughs> The toaster communicated with all of the other toasters, and if um, yeah, if if you hadn't been using it enough, it would talk to its other friends and would say, "Look, I don't think Brian's, you know, toasting really enough. Committed. I'm yeah. only getting toasting once every second day, whereas the neighbourhood here is getting toast four times a day, and it will take itself off to a new owner. And so I think in that way, you're ensuring, you know, a really interesting use of assets. It's it's easy to see, you know, at some of those levels. And I, I look, I've Watch the film. You'll feel really sorry for the guy who just wasn't getting his toaster. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's a metaphor for something in there. I just can't think what it is. Uh, yeah, your question. Hi, my name's Brian, and I definitely deserve a toaster. I think that <laughs> my my question is in relation to whether you think that the growing uh, autonomy of, of artificial systems will allow global corporations to shirk their responsibility when things go wrong because as things grow, the, the chances of accidents being very large will grow. Um, now, a previous speaker here at Planet Talks, Polly Higgins, has been slogging away for many, many years trying to get ecocide listed on the International Criminal Court. And will we need to see a day when artificial intelligence has to be brought in front of the International Criminal Court in some way? Or will it just be that it is so diverse that responsibility can't be taken anymore? So, so this has a technical name. It's called the accountability gap. 
And we, this is why, for example, once I'm very worried, my colleagues are very worried about use of autonomy in the battlefield, because who is responsible when some war crime is committed? Who can you prosecute? You can't, you can't. You can't put a computer, or putting a computer or robot in jail is not really actually going to be very effective. Very, and so... You put them on the bottom of the stage. So yes, so we do have to worry that we have this new actor in our society, along with corporations, that, that will need to, to be incorporated in our legal system so we can hold things accountable and we can live the lives where, where, where things behave as they should do. And you know, before you even get to kind of Toby's examples about war, you could pull that in a little bit and say there are algorithms that could be imported to Australia from elsewhere that have sitting in them notions about what you do in certain circumstances that don't comport to our value system that were trained on different data models so they inhabit a world view that we wouldn't share. One of the challenges with that, at least so far, has been that for many of those algorithms, the data set on which it was trained isn't always known and the weighting of the decisions inside is sometimes seen as commercial incompetence. Mm. So there are regulations that you would need to pass, which we haven't done yet in Australia, that would say the same way we have done about all kinds of other things. I mean, Australia has a fairly aggressive border system when it comes to biosecurity, when it comes to... Well, immigration. Immigration. I know not necessarily what I'm thinking of here, but I am thinking... And not I'm not thinking about the censorship of my childhood. Mm. But, you know, we do say certain things don't come across this border without us getting to ask some questions. And this set of objects ought to be scrutinised the same way. I have to say, though, I'm feeling less and less faith in that uh, as, you know, the, we become less and less able to speak up against or to the large corporations. The TPP was just signed. Yep, I'm aware of that. But, you know, you can't also then just hold up your hands and go, oh, geez, I give up. Yeah. And then say, eh, crap. I mean, there has to be a piece where you say, what would it mean to ask... Maybe it's not all algorithms, maybe it's the ones that are employed by our governments to determine our benefits or our services that we might want to actually know what are the decisions that are being made inside that computational object and how are certain data sets being weighted. Australia, of course, is the only, only one of only two countries in the world that has a Google tax. So congratulations, Australia. Yeah. You have actually started the beginnings of standing up towards these corporations. Have they paid anything yet? Well, they paid a little bit more. Not as much as they owe. But. Okay, now I have to say I would love to go to more questions, but we're very near the end here. And I have one question, which is very indulgent of me, but I'm sure it will apply to others here. Um, as I said earlier, I do have this fear about, and I think it's from growing up in the 60s, 70s and 80s, that, um, that uh, giving over my data and every time... Well, every now and then I freak out about the cloud and accidentally erase everything in my phone, which is kind of annoying, but does make me feel a little bit empowered. Is there, um, should I be this afraid and is there anything I can do to hold on to my data and my privacy? We, we should be taking care. We should take more, more care of our, our digital selves. And I should warn you as well, start taking care of your analog self. So we've probably, you may have already felt you've given up all your digital data, but we're starting to connect ourselves to Fitbits, to smartwatches. Now that data, all about yourself, your heartbeat, your location, that is all being given up in the cloud to faceless corporations who can do with whatever they like with it. So before you sign those terms of release, think carefully about what data, about your heartbeat even, that you're sharing. I was hoping that would end with something a little uplifting. Can we maybe... Uh... I don't know, answer some other question I haven't asked that's got a happy ending? <laughs> no. Um, so, listen, I mean, I think the thing is that there are streams of data that we have already wittingly and unwittingly committed to multiple institutions. Um, what do, and so it's less of a what do we do with what's happened as to how we think about what moves forward and how we think about what are the rules of the road we want to have. So, you know, at the moment, lots of the data that already exists about you exists in separate pockets. Uh, thinking about how do we build a world where certain sets of your data can't go hang out with other sets of your data would be good. So the example in the United States, there's a managed healthcare service provider, so they provide health insurance. They acquired all the credit card data of all of their customers and combined the credit card data and the healthcare data. Yeah, exactly, that's the place you should make, because suddenly they went, huh, you who say you were working on your diet turn out to go to McDonald's five times a month. We're going to change your profile. So 
the more frightening thing, yes, yeah, she promises she'll be upbeat. The more frightening thing isn't just the individual pieces of data, it's what happens when multiple pieces of data get put together and the sum of those pieces is more than the individual parts. So be active, get involved, ask questions. Yeah, and be actually every now and again go back and look in your phone at all the people you've given permission to for all those things and have a bit of a think of do you really want to give everyone your location? Do you really want to give everyone access to your social networks? Do you really want to... You, you promise you'll be optimistic now? Okay, good. <laughs> um, no pressure, Kristen. But. So, so I, would say, I would say I totally agree with, with all of that, um, with the reminder that, that we are often giving off our data because we want to use a service. And so the person who gives all their Fitbit data but manages to get over 10,000 steps and prevent a heart attack is not necessarily an evil thing. Um, so I, th I think there, there are, we, we've just got to ask that question, why, why, why would we do that and are we getting value in return from doing that? So the example I gave earlier with, with Bernie is one of the exhibitions that we're developing for November at MOD is one which asks, is it possi possible to aggressively pursue peace? And how might we use systems, artificial intelligence technologies and infrastructure to actually pursue peace instead of just prevent conflict? And one of those exhibitions is going to be a video piece that looks at how far are we prepared to give up our personal data to a cyber bot that would wage peace across the internet. And if, if it's in pursuit of peace, are you willing to give up privacy or not? And what is that thin line between security, surveillance and safety? And I don't have the answer, but I think it's worth asking those questions. I love that waging peace idea. That's fantastic, Kristen. Now, Toby has asked for the microphone. We are just about to run out of... Well, we have run out of time, but is it going to be happy, happy? OK. So I, I want to end on, on the upbeat note, which is that just like with climate change, the future is still yet to be decided by us. So go out and act in a, to make the future you want to have. Thank you. Keep it going for Professor Genevieve Bell, Dr Kristen Alford. Professor Toby Walsh, thank you so much for your questions and your company. The whole session was recorded for Radio National. It'll end up on some show, maybe even Eleanor Halls. Um, thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the program. We'll see you later.